Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events. Welcome to the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. Here, we settle into the murky, tangled, and freaking hard parts of life to restore our relationship with the self so it can ripple out to the people we love, the work we do, and the world around us. If we can't fix what's wrong, then our grandchildren inherit it. In order to fix what's wrong, we have to talk about it. And we can't move that conversation forward if we're not willing to be real about where we are now. We have to push on the edges of what it means to connect. Otherwise, nothing will ever change. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, and I'm here to guide you through a series of radically honest conversations about what it means to be truly human in all of its messy, beautiful, hilarious, and heartbreaking glory. In our collective effort of looking inward, we're starting to do the outward work of reconnecting the world. While these discussions will guide you into the connectfulness practice, this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for the depth of work that you'd encounter with a licensed provider. If something in this episode touches you, reach out. That's where you initiate the ripple that restores relationships. You can learn more about my connectfulness counseling practice and online workshops at connectfulness.com. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Lissa Rankin, the author of Sacred Medicine, A Doctor's Quest to Unravel the Mysteries of Healing. Dr. Rankin is a New York Times bestselling author of multiple books, including Mind Over Medicine, is a physician, speaker, mystic, and founder of the Whole Health Medicine Institute and the nonprofit Heal at Last. Lissa has starred in two national public television specials. Her TED Talks have been viewed over 4 million times, and she leads workshops both online and at retreat centers like Esalen, 1440, Omega, and Kripalu. She's currently consulting for a Biden task force on vaccine hesitancy as a trauma symptom. She resides in Northern California. For more information, you can visit LissaRankin.com. That's Lissa with two S's. And Lissa's book, Sacred Medicine, will be available April 5th of 2022, or it's available for pre-order now. It's being published by Sounds True. So welcome back, everybody. I'm here today with Lissa Rankin. Lissa is the author of a wonderful new book called Sacred Medicine, and I'm so happy to have you here with me, Lissa. Oh, it's a delight to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. You know, I have been really enjoying this new book of yours, and I'm so excited it's coming out. There's We're living in such a time right now, right? <sighs> and I think what your book is really calling us back to is the healing process in many ways for the fragmentation 
that exists throughout our culture and throughout our bodies. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There was a quote somewhere towards the middle-ish of your book that really called me in. Um, And I wonder if we can even just kind of center a conversation around this. You wrote, we live in a disembodied culture because trauma causes us to leave our bodies. It is a defense mechanism and, in extreme cases, a survival skill that can save you. Yet you can't heal the body without being in it. Mm. Can we talk about that? It's like so rich and deep and everything. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's, and I just want to like have a kind of empathy side note also to say that when the body is really suffering, it's really hard to mm. want to be in it, to be motivated to be in it. It's so much more tempting to maybe meditate your way out of it or yeah. dissociate out of it or, you know, in, in whatever way we can, of course, we want to have pain relief. Yes. And at the same time, you know, certainly one of the main things that I discovered in, in this 10-year journey of uh, researching and writing this book was that very thing, that we can't heal the body unless we're in it. And so many of the healing practices that I observed were the opposite. They were like spiritual bypasses mm-hmm. that gave people temporary relief because they were leaving the body. And the body was what was suffering. And so it totally makes sense to me. I came to call some of those practices energy transfusions. In other words, like, you know, if somebody were to come to the emergency room and they were anemic on -hmm. blood, you know, the first thing we would do is like tank them up. You're going to need four units of packed red blood cells because you're anemic. And so many of the people that are chronically ill or especially those people with mystery illnesses who conventional medicine cannot figure out what to do. And they have been shuffled from one practitioner to the next and all through conventional medicine and been failed. And then they've gone through the alternative medicine world and nobody can cure them. And they've tried everything they know how to do. Those people often wind up becoming incredibly depleted on life force. And so, you know, those practices that might be disembodying for example, Mm -hmm. but provide some temporary relief can often at least tank people up a little bit. It's kind of like, here's a couple units of packed red blood cells, but then, you know, we would be, it would be medical malpractice. If somebody came in anemic into the emergency room and we gave them blood and we, but we didn't work them up to find out why are you anemic in the first place? Where are you losing Mm -hmm. blood from? Or why did your bone marrow stop making it? And so that's the part that sort of requires us to come back into the body. And it's much more uncomfortable. It's easier to just leave the body and feel better. It's so easy to leave the body, right? I mean, like dissociation in so many different ways is, gosh, I think what our culture is built on in a lot of ways, Um, you know, buy something new or or, you know, drink this thing or whatever. Like there's, there's so many different ways that we... We practice some form or another of leaving our bodies yeah. on the regular. Yeah. And yeah. I, I was absolutely one of those people. I, you know, after my medical training, well, I had my own sort of developmental trauma to begin with. And then medical training itself is incredibly traumatic. 
And by the time I quit my job in 2007 in the hospital as a doctor, I went back. I used to be a dancer. I was in a dance company when I was young mm. and I went back and did a dance instructor training program. And they were, this was with Debbie Rosas from Nia. And she was saying, dance your left elbow. And I realized I couldn't feel my left elbow unless I put it on the ground and kind of rubbed it around on the ground or yeah. I scratched it with my fingernails. Like I some kind feel- of contact. Yeah. And I, it was so startling for me to realize I had actually lost kind of proprioception. Like I was not, I couldn't find my left elbow in space. And it, it made me realize how disembodied I had become like a walking cerebrum. And most doctors are like that. Um, most people are like that. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> there are so many people that come into my office and I'm like, you know, working with them in a somatic way to try to discover what's happening inside relationally. And they have no idea what they're yeah. feeling. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, what I've been, what I've really been drawn to lately is, do you know the work of Bonnie Badenoch? I do. I love her work. Yeah. The yeah. heart of trauma. And the heart of trauma. Right. And yep. so, so one of the th- small little tidbits I picked out of the heart of trauma was when Bonnie was talking about like our innate like how we show up as little ones when we're first born in the world and how we talk through like language of moving babies and bodies and crying. And we're asking for what we want. We are aware of our needs. And over time, we're slowly shutting down our ability to know ourselves and to communicate that with others. And when, when those needs don't get tuned into and matched by somebody else and I think those mismatches and the ways that we turn ourselves off over time contribute to us living in these disembodied bodies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, trauma locates in the body. You know, yes. I, I I always like to have another sort of empathy disclaimer when I say things like that, because if I don't, sometimes people misunderstand and think that I'm suggesting that you know, people with somatic symptoms that I'm saying it's all in their head and it's really not, it's really located in the body and, mm-hmm. you know, via the nervous system, via the, you know, disabling of the immune system, via chronic inflammation through the microbiome, through all these other ways, but it it really is um, locked in the body and can yeah. create so much suffering. And of course, this is one of the things that you know, they don't teach you in medical school. Like this was, I guess, kind of the holy grail of this book for me was realizing that, um, you know, we know now that trauma causes disease. That's very clear. We have really good data that is no longer in any way woo, you know, like like ACEs data and stuff along those lines. Absolutely. I mean, we have, you know, that's becoming more and more mainstream. Thank God we have people like Nadine Burke Harris, the California Surgeon General, giving her TED Med talk about adverse childhood experiences and adult onset disease and, you know, the significant decrease in longevity of people with high A scores, high A scores. But I really wanted to make a point in my book also to talk about what Mark Epstein, the Buddhist Mm -hmm. psychiatrist calls the trauma of everyday life or Mm -hmm. developmental trauma, because there are a lot of people out there that have an A score of zero and a huge burden of developmental trauma. And so we have much less data around that because it just hasn't even been tracked. Nobody's even screening for it in a medical interview. Right. And I'm curious too then about epigenetics and inherited patterns, right? Because our nervous systems learn 
in so many different ways. And that stress response cycle that that we learn to inhabit in our bodies Absolutely. could also be epigenetic. Yeah. I've been seeing that in my clients a lot right now with what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. There's all this sort of reactivation PTSD triggers around the Holocaust and around, mm-hmm. you know, World War II and, and refugees and you know, these kind of generational wounds that, you know, these clients maybe that are even young and, you know, weren't alive during any of this, don't have any actual memory of this, but they're watching their parents and their grandparents go through their triggers and they're experiencing their own kind of individual or independent triggers around experiences that are not part of this life for them, but still very significantly impact them. And absolutely epigenetics is, you know, one of the ways that that can be passed down. And we know that we know that scientifically as well. Yeah. In the book, you talk about six steps to healing you outline. And I think that they're so like, it's really interesting for me to take a look at these because when I look at them, I think I think you sort of described my work too, mm. <laughs> right? Mm. And so I'm thinking like this is healing like in so many different realms, um, you know. So believing that healing is possible, I think, was your first one. Am I right about that? Mm-hmm. Connecting and surrendering to your um, inner pilot light, letting your innermost knowing guide your healing journey. So letting letting like the the wisdom like the guide within you is that what you're talking about there? Yeah, I mean we every religious tradition has a name for that. Psycho- psychologists call it something different. We can call it your divine self, your higher self, uh-huh. your I call it your inner pilot light. In internal family systems, we call it self with a capital S. You can call it Christ consciousness or Buddha nature or whatever, but right, you know, sort of. I guess that second step, those six steps are from mind over medicine, which this is really the sequel to. Right. And I really think of that second step as, which originally was the sixth step in the original version of mind over medicine, which I've since revised. I think of that as sort of the antidote to the people that are kind of grasping their healing journey with both hands in such a clenched fist attaching to sort of, I have to cure myself. I have to find my cure. Like, of course, of course, people are so terrified that they're going to not find relief or that they're going to die. And that's legit. Like that is absolutely legitimate to have those feelings. But part of what I have found, especially where I live, I live in the Bay area and this place is full of health nuts. And so sometimes, and I imagine you might have some of these people on your um, in your oh, yeah. listening also, there are so many people that I come across who are doing everything quote unquote, right. You know, they are eating their raw vegan diet. They're taking a hundred supplements. They're going to their yoga class. They're waking up and meditating every morning. They've been to the best doctors at the local university hospital. And they've also been to their acupuncturist and their naturopath and their guru and their energy healer. All the things, <laughs> you know, like they're not, they're not, they don't have any bad habits and they're getting eight hours of sleep. <laughs> like they are some of the sickest people I've ever met. And so that second step, I think. I I think particularly is aimed at those people. It sounds like it's really bringing us back to discernment though, Mm. right? Like it's really guiding us back to like, where's that wisdom lie inside of you? Right. 
Well, yeah. and I, I give the example in the book. I start the book by telling the story of uh, a traumatic injury that I had from a dog bite mm-hmm. when I was mauled by a dog in the middle of doing this research. And, you know, my initial reaction to looking down at my inner thigh and seeing that I had a huge chunk of skin missing right over my femoral artery and it's bleeding. And I think I'm, I might die. Mm-hmm. That initial terror you know, if we're in that kind of terrified place, it's really hard to hear what I call the whole health intelligences, your, your mental intelligence, of course, but also your somatic intelligence, your intuitive intelligence and your emotional intelligence. And especially when we're on a healing journey, it's so important to be able to tune into all of those intelligences and weave them together. Like, like you're an orchestra conductor. It's like, and now we will bring in the strings and now, you know, fade out the drums and bring in the cello. And I think that's very, very difficult to do when we're stuck in the contracted, disembodied, terrified, you know, sort of in IFS language blended with parts um, place that we can't hear that guidance, but it's there. We all have that it's built in. It's one of the beautiful gifts that's built into being human. And, and yet we lose touch with it. And when we leave our bodies, it makes it much harder, especially to access somatic intelligence, of course. Yeah. I don't know that everybody that's listening knows what somatic intelligence is. Mm. I understand you, but I wonder if maybe for our listeners, we should just dive into that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, almost everybody can relate to the idea of like a gut feeling right? Mm-hmm. When we, and we might, we might think that's the same thing as intuition. In my experience with myself, I'll just speak for my own direct experience. My intuition drops in almost like it's comes from nowhere. <laughs> kind of just <laughs> sort of drops in sort of as a thought, except it has no emotional charge to it at all. It feels t- entirely neutral. And then I might have an emotional reaction to what my intuition is guiding me to. That's very different for me than if I feel in my body, let's say a contraction in my solar plexus, if I'm thinking about a particular decision that I'm trying to make. And that Mm -hmm. feels very different. That might feel sort of like a no to me. Whereas if I feel this kind of opening in my heart, sort of blossoming in my chest, like a butterfly, that might feel like a yes in my body and different sensations and vibrations and feelings in my body are sort of speaking to me all of the time and giving me information if I'm paying attention. If I'm right, if you're paying attention. Which I'm often not. <laughs> so <laughs> so that of course is the real work of tuning into one's somatic intelligence is we must be in the body and paying attention in order to be able to interpret and interpreting the body sensations is very, very difficult for trauma survivors mm-hmm. because even if we do get sensations in the body, our minds may make up inaccurate stories. And I love um, mm-hmm. some of your listeners probably know about Stephen Porges and polyvagal theory Yes, and some of the other people who have interpreted polyvagal theory um, talk about how um, the state of our nervous systems can create our stories. Right. And if we're in a a fight or flight or freeze state of threat, then we might be having a sensation in the body that's legitimate, 
And we might, but we might make up a paranoid story about that sensation if we have not been able to treat the traumas that have maybe caused um, the nervous system dysregulation. So I find that in myself, at least because of my own trauma history, um, interpreting those sensations is really the edgy part of somatic intelligence. Yeah. I have found that I need to like really spend time getting to know the sensations in my body in a somatic way, like just as a baseline. Mm-hmm. Right. And the more that I do that and make it an, like a really intentional practice, the more available that knowledge becomes to me at a later time. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It is a practice and it is not quick. And people don't no. like to hear that because, of course, everybody wants the quick fix. How do I, how do I turn on all four whole health intelligences automatically overnight with a pill, if possible, please? <laughs> right? And don't make me feel any pain in the process. You know, <laughs> you know what, what strikes me about that though is that, like, I think as our birthright, we're kind of born with a template for them to some extent if they're nurtured. And the only way that they can really be nurtured from an early, early age is if the people raising us can nurture them. In other words, they have to be in touch with their own. Absolutely. And right? So, so whenever, yeah. So few of us had those good enough parents that knew how to do that because, as you said, these sort of generational wounds get passed down. In in my family, it was sort of this one of the significant impediments to embodiment was religion. Hmm. And that sort of fundamentalism that makes the body sort of a sinner or makes the body a sin. Right. Um, How do you get in touch with the somatic intelligence then? Right. Absolutely. You don't. Right. You disembody and memorize dogma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That feels really resonant. Yeah. Yeah. So it is, it is a practice. And but but I I always it's I have a tendency to not want to sort of oversimplify anything or suggest that things are easier than they are. But I also want to say, just to be encouraging to people, it's so worth it. Like, it's oh gosh, yeah, the gifts of the gifts of embodiment are absolutely worth the effort and discomfort of of embodiment, um, especially in the ways in which they can show up in in relationship, like when our bodies can, and I'm not, I'm not even talking about like a sexual relationship, although that's obviously one of the sort of side effects of embodiment is that people tend to have an improvement in their ability to experience pleasure in their sexuality. But I'm even just talking about the reaction of my body to taking my dog to the beach and taking a walk yes. on the beach and feeling that sort of vibratory energy sort of coursing through my body as I'm in nature and I'm watching my dog think she's a seal and just so joyous and being able to experience not just visually with my eyes, the beauty of being out in nature, but to actually feel my body respond to the grounding, to my, you know, my bare feet on the sand and the full embodied experience of what I did right before I got on this interview with you. <laughs> Um, yeah. And, and, and it, it, I think gives us so much more resilience and we're able to tolerate the, um, potentially disembodying impact of things like right. watching the news right now. Oh gosh. Yeah. So much. Yeah. It, it brings me to the point in your book where you were talking about pleasure practices as medicine for the body. Cause that's really what we've been talking about here Right, is 
you know, um, I think you mentioned that these pleasure practices, it could be anything, right? Like dance or singing, all of these different things um, really bolster the way we live, bolster our enjoyment of the moment. Yes. And that's, you know, those are the things that I kind of put into the um, into part one of the book, which is really about energy transfusion practices right. where we're bolstering the life force. And if you go into indigenous healing methods, almost so many of them involve those pleasure practices, right? There is dancing, there is singing, there is um, myth, mythology, there's yeah. storytelling, there's hands-on healing, there's, you know, community, there's love. And, and in a lot of somatic body work practices, there's absolutely. a lot of, there's also a lot, right? Like I'm thinking uh, the VU that we teach in somatic experiences. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, and none of those things were happening in my hospital. Like <laughs> that was the opposite of what was happening in the hospital uh, with our right. patients. And so, you know, I think that's really important because when we can transfuse the body uh, and the mind and spirit, soul, the soul, yeah, the human, with those practices, then we have more resourcing mm -hmm. in order to be able to do the more difficult trauma healing work, which is hard. Yeah. I kind of my my best friend Diane ha, gave me a great metaphor, and I've been making a lot of art around it lately, where she says that healing is like we're like whales. And we have to go down into the depths, you know, sort of down into the dark, down into the depths of our psyche and our consciousness and, and do this more difficult healing work. But then we also have to come back up to the surface and splash our tails around and get some oxygen and play with the other whales. And I love watching the whales. I live right on the ocean and I love just watching them like they play, they play for fun. They play a lot. They yeah. play for fun. And then they do go back down. And so... I know I have been triggered when I go to trauma healing workshops where like they put you in backjacks and you're doing all trauma all day, like <laughs> with no, no pleasure practices. And I'm like, I cannot handle that. I need to be in my body. I need to be dancing. Yeah. I need to be singing. I need to be, you know, doing some yoga stretches. I need to be in connection with other people in a ritualized way. I need to do some art. I need to have ways to express myself so that the trauma can come out of me. Yes. Um, but it's also, if we do the energy transfusions without the trauma healing, then it usually becomes more of like a hedonistic or spiritual bypass. And, and, and as I said, that can be resourcing in the moment, but it does not typically make people what I call miracle prone. Quite the right. opposite. It sort of right. prevents it's the people from doing that. In many work. ways, that one of the biggest pieces that I got from your work is the both end right? Like that it's, it's not this or that it's, it's um, pain relief and feeling your pain. Absolutely. And I have right? a whole it's section in the book about what I call the paradoxes of healing. And, you know, if you look out there at what people are, um, what influencers, for example, are sharing about health and wellness and mind, body medicine and things like that. So many of them make the mistake of only expressing half of a paradox and, in a way, half of a paradox is 100% wrong. Because if we only take a half, of, I'll give you an example so people yeah. know what I'm talking about. You can heal yourself and you can't do it alone. 
Mm. Keep an open mind and don't be so open. Your brains fall out, (laughs) you know, be clear in your intention to heal and surrender attachment to outcomes, like trust your intuition and follow the science and apply critical thinking. Would you think that this is kind of what we've been seeing so much lately in this, like, especially around COVID, the way that there's such a division? Well, it's, it's been startling to me, to be honest. I kind of went nose down into writing this book as the pandemic was unfolding, and I completed the original draft of the manuscript in September 2020. And I turned in the manuscript, wow. and then I kind of came up for air, and I looked around, and I was like, holy crap, what happened what happened yeah. here? What happened to these mind body medicine doctors that I've respected and trusted for years? And now all of a sudden they're saying COVID is a hoax. And, you know, this is, uh, they're pr- promoting all these conspiracy theories. And several of the chapters in my original manuscript about um, energy healers I had worked with extensively, I had to cut the entire chapter. I had to rewrite the whole book oh. <laughs> because I was like, wow, these people went crazy. Mm-hmm. Like psychotically delusional, like out of touch with reality. Yeah. And I, I've always kind of been, um, I've always thought of myself as sort of bridging the worlds of conventional medicine and spiritual healing and trauma healing and things like that, sort of standing at the bridge. Mm-hmm. But what I realized is that people like the, there already had been a division between sort of the like pro-conventional medicine, pro-science, pro-technology crowd, and the sort of pro-natural healing, anti-conventional medicine, um, we're going to heal ourselves crowd. And I've always thought of them as sort of warring camps in a way. Um, And I I was raised in one of those camps. My father was a very skeptical doctor. And anything in the realm of sort of natural healing or spiritual healing was at best quackery and at worst, the work of the devil, you know, (laughs) from my fundamentalist mother. And so, um, you know, I, I, I kind of grew up on, in one of those camps in the sort of pro conventional medicine camp, but I never left that camp. I just kind of opened up to the other camp of like, wow, there's cool stuff over here. We should use both of the, we should, we should include all of these in our medical treatment. But I hadn't realized until COVID that sort of what, maybe what made people tempted to kind of rebel against something mainstream like conventional medicine also maybe was a trauma symptom that made Mm -hmm. them rebel against kind of anything mainstream, including public health guidelines and masks, vaccinations and things like that. So that was really a surprise to me. I, my own audience turned on me. Like so many people were like, what are you doing? You're promoting vaccination. You're you're, you're pro mask, you're pro social distancing and lockdown. Um, I thought you wrote mind over medicine. And so people acted like I had just like, like I had slapped them. Wow. Um, and it was so confusing to me. Yeah, I can imagine. My clients and friends are frontline COVID doctors. Like they're, they were out there on the front lines and I'm going, wait, if you think this is a hoax, you should like not wear a mask and go to the emergency room right now. Like it was very, very confusing. Yeah. I can imagine how confusing that would be. It's like a form of gaslighting in a way. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's incredibly abusive gaslighting because, yeah. you know, because there's a whole are, platform and people listening. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, I have, I certainly have my own judgments about people who were making money and building a platform off of COVID denialism. And yeah, it's just, yeah, there there's, um, I certainly hope those people get held accountable in some way because there is blood on their hands. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. And I'm also wondering, I'd love to hear your thoughts about long-term COVID. Mm. Right. Like I'm not a medical doctor. I'm, I'm a relationship therapist um, who lives in the Hudson Valley in New York. And Lyme is like tick-borne illness is huge here. And there's something about those illnesses and long-term COVID that I've just been noticing feel somewhat similar. Well, that's a big question. And I'm, yeah. I'm sensitive to anybody who might be listening, who might have long COVID yes. or have chronic Lyme or chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia or uh, other post-viral uh, syndromes, chronic pain syndromes, these sort of mystery illnesses that are very difficult to treat and often baffle and befuddle and I wonder if that's just the similarity, what you're naming right there, if that alone, the the difficulty in managing it is what I'm feeling into. Yes, it is the difficulty in managing it for, I can tell you for doctors having been one of them, um, doctors don't like not being able to cure something. <laughs> this is part of our trauma response is I think many I, you know, I, I work with doctors. I, I am sort of a trauma healer for doctors. Um, and I can tell you that I have yet to meet a doctor who was not overpowered in childhood in some way to the point oh. that, that we decided at some point that never again, were we going to be the least powerful person in the room oh. and that the power to facilitate saving somebody's life is sort of like as powerful as you can get right? Like what's more powerful than being able to save a life? Right. But the flip side of that trauma symptom, I mean, it's beautiful. It's beautiful because it motivates us to do something really, really caring. But the flip side of that is that if we can't save a life, we see it as a failure and we feel powerless and we feel helpless and we feel out of control. And that's scary to trauma survivors who become Mm -hmm. doctors. And what that means for the patient is that if the patient has an illness that we don't know how to treat, that we, uh, all those sort of inner children feelings that come up of feeling worthless and helpless and not good enough and powerless. And, and so we behave very badly with people who have illnesses we don't know how to treat. Instead of just Mm -hmm. saying, I don't know how to help you. And that that makes me feel awful. And I'm so sorry that you're suffering, which would be much more compassionate. Mm -hmm. Instead, um, you know, those people who have those mystery illnesses often wind up being additionally traumatized beyond the illness by how they are treated by by the medical mainstream. Yeah. And yeah. and that's why I think a lot of those people wind up going into the sacred medicine territory because they get treated better. They do mm-hmm. get treated better, usually, not always. Um, and I wrote a whole section in my book about the shadow of sacred medicine and how harmful some healers can be. But I also have witnessed people who, you know, conventional medicine has given up on um, being held with great 
delicacy, with great care, with with great compassion by healers who say, I believe you. I know how hard this is for you. I don't know if I can help you, but I'm willing to try. And either way, I want you to know you're not going to be alone. And in and of itself, that can be an antidote. That right there is healing. Right. You're not going to be alone. Right. Absolutely. I'm here with you. Yeah. Absolutely. Just from my own somatic training, that right there, that that I am with you, that can calm down the nervous system. Absolutely. And once we start calming down the nervous system and the stress response cycle starts to have a little bit of re- like resolution in there, it can, that can shift some of what's happening in our bodies too. Like some stress, um, if I'm getting this right, <laughs> stress can cause more inflammation. Yes. Right. And so that, it's not, that is, yeah. And chronic inflammation is, we're getting more and more scientific data around how that is at the root of almost every illness. Right. And tr- we have good data linking, tr- you know, trauma. The, trauma, the trauma burden in the body to chronic inflammation. And that also, you know, disables the immune system and impacts, you know, the um, the gut's ability to absorb nutrients and impacts the the nervous system and all of that is, you know, right. It's, it's very multifactorial. But there's so but, many layers. Absolutely, but that's you know, with that disclaimer around long COVID, what I was going to say, and this is, mm-hmm. you know, potentially triggering to some people is that my theory, and this is not science, this is has not been studied as far as I know. My theory is that people who develop long COVID probably have a greater trauma burden than mm-hmm. people who got COVID and recovered with no sequelae. Right. And I also have a theory that one of the reasons that um, Black and Indigenous communities, for example, suffered much more greatly and died more frequently is because the collective trauma of of racism and genocide and all of the traumas that those populations have been through, at least in Mm -hmm. in the United States, um, makes the body much more vulnerable. The nervous system is more chronically dysregulated. There's more likely to be chronic inflammation. And so while we're all equally vulnerable to contracting the disease, if the, if the, if the nervous system is more chronically in a sort of dorsal vagal freeze state in, you know, that level of threat or a sympathetic fight or flight stress response, and, and then we get COVID, then, you know, it's, it's much more difficult for the body to, to recover completely. Yes. Yeah. You and my listeners can't see that my head has been nodding. Mm. (laughs) And I, yes, just like a really big yes. Yeah. And I want to be really clear that I'm not saying it's all in your head. Right. It's absolutely in the body. It's on multiple levels too, right? Like the traumas in the body. Yes. The diseases in the body. There's, there's so many different pieces that yes, they are in your body and yes. Yeah. And I hope that people hear that not as sort of overly triggering or disempowering in any way. But what, what I find hopeful about that is that we can't, trauma is treatable. We can treat trauma. And this is potentially really good news. And again, we don't have a lot of data yet. We have very clear data that trauma causes disease. We don't have really good data proving treating trauma reverses disease, but we have a whole lot of anecdotes. 
anecdotes are not science. Are there any that you can share? Oh gosh, yes. Um, and the, and there are many in the book about um, about those sorts of things. So, for example, I have a whole chapter in Sacred Medicine about Asha Clinton, who is the founder of Advanced Integrative Therapy, which is in the family of energy psychology, but with a lot of sort of Jungian archetype work and, you know, sort of deep roots of other types of psychotherapies. And she's also, a, she's also really an energy healer and a, a Sufi and Buddhist. She was a Buddhist for many years and then um, became a Sufi. And so there's a lot of spiritual healing in her work as well. It's very advanced and integrative. <laughs> and she has been using advanced integrative therapy, which is a trauma healing modality for as primary treatment for cancer, mm. um, not as a substitute for treatment of cancer for those who want it, but for patients who have, for whatever reason, either been told that uh, cancer, conventional cancer treatment will not cure them mm-hmm. or people who have declined conventional tre- cancer mm-hmm. treatment, you know, opting for hospice instead yep. or something like that. And so she has many anecdotes that are in the book of people who had a cancer diagnosis for whatever reason did opted not to do conventional medical treatment and were brave enough to do their very difficult shadow work. So this isn't just treating, you know, the, the traumas of how we were victimized, right? It's it's part of it, mm -hmm. but it's, AIT takes it deeper. It takes it it specifically in the, she calls it the multi-causal illness protocol. And it specifically is looking at the ways in which we have perpetrated trauma and Mm -hmm. all of us have perpetrated trauma. None of us. This is such an important conversation. Yeah. None of us are innocent from this. And that can be very, very difficult. I know for me doing the trauma work around how I was a victim of trauma was very, very difficult, but sitting with the appropriate feelings of shame around how I have perpetrated trauma was mm-hmm. almost intolerable for somebody yeah. who had a pretty high opinion of herself prior to trauma healing. When, when I teach relational, um, like relational living classes, one of the first questions I ask everybody that's, that comes in is who here has been hurt in relationships? Like, have you been hurt in a relationship? Almost everybody says yes. And then I say, who here has hurt someone mm-hmm. in a relationship? And again, almost everybody says yes, right. right? So we have this knowledge that we can cause harm. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I think that's really kind of where you're going with this. It's it's that piece of it. It's like harm on multiple levels. Yes. We can cause harm and we can cause harm to ourselves also. Mm-hmm. So for example, I tell the story in Sacred Medicine about Avery, who was a physician client of mine, a young mother. She was diagnosed with breast cancer and um, sought conventional treatment for her breast cancer. Did not tell anybody. Her kids didn't know her business partners didn't know, like nobody knew that Avery was sick. Mm-hmm. And so she recovered from her first breast cancer and wound up with recurrent breast cancer. And this time, because she was a client of mine and we had Dick Schwartz, the founder of internal family systems was coming in to sort of talk about internal family systems as medical treatment for people who are chronically or terminally ill. And so Avery volunteered to, um, do some of her internal family systems work around the cancer. 
And when, when we were making contact with parts in her that might be using the body to try to get her attention about something else. And, and I'm, I want to be clear. And Dick is very clear about this too. Not, not all symptoms are psycho spiritual traumas trying Mm -hmm. to get our attention. Um, Right. But sometimes they are. And so in this case, there was a part that popped up in, in Avery that said, well, Avery throws herself under the bus. She throws her, she throws her parts under the bus in service of everybody else. And look what happened when the cancer came last time. It, it was, it was the only thing that caused Avery to pay any attention to herself. Oh. And then the cancer got cured. And then she went right back to throwing everybody, throwing all of her parts under the bus in, in service of everybody else. And so the cancer was basically saying, I have to be here. It's the only way Avery's ever going to take care of herself. And she was shocked. She said, oh my God, I do totally do that. Yeah. And so, you know, part of her healing work, and she did also seek out conventional treatment. Part of her healing work was to make agreements with her own parts. I am no longer going to throw my own inner children under the bus in exchange for caring about everybody else to my own depletion. And so far she's cancer-free. I just spoke with her recently to make sure I was accurate in in my follow-up. And so in, you know, in Avery's case, it was a lot of like how she had harmed herself. Right. um, And absolutely neglected herself and abused herself. And how many of us do that? Oh my gosh, especially doctors. (laughs) And therapists. And and therapists (laughs) and pretty much everybody in the healing professions, including sacred medicine practitioners. I went to see this one guru. He was a, he was a Hindu high priest and an indigenous Balinese shaman who did healing work. And you sort of wait outside his house and he meditates in the morning and, you know, you come in and, and when I went to sit with this Balinese healer, he started like hacking up a lung. Like he would like blood's coming out of his mouth. And I'm going, um, maybe you should go see, see a healer. Like maybe you need to see a doctor. Like, and he was like, Oh no, no, no. (laughs) Right. So um, I think that tendency to prioritize caring for others to our own um, Mm self-destruction is a very significant trauma symptom that arises in people who are drawn to all of the healing professions. Very much agreed. Yeah. Other people have the opposite. Uh, There are other people who prioritize their own needs and absolutely do not give a crap about anybody else, you know? (laughs) So, but that is not, that is not the wound of healers. (laughs) Right. No, the the healer's wound is different. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's both a shadow and a light, right? So that makes me kind of want to come back to this piece that you you briefly mentioned and that you write about, um, about the shadow, about how you shine the light on the shadow. Yeah. And this is why we need the energy transfusions, right? Because shining the light on the ways in which we have been perpetrators of trauma for other people is especially when we start looking at like, oh, I'm a mother. Mm -hmm. I already see that my, you know, my child has these 
I very, she's 16 now. I can identify these trauma symptoms. I know what caused them. Mm-hmm. I don't want her to have to wait until she's my age in order to get treatment. To have it all for, figured out. Yeah. yeah. Right. So it's very hard when we are, um, when we become aware of how we may have harmed our children, our loved ones, ourselves, and to be able to hold that with compassion, which is why I love internal family systems because people, you know, it's a big buzzword to talk about self-love. But how do you love the parts of yourself that have, I, I really thought about this at the beginning of the Me Too movement. I had a yeah. I had a lot of compassion for the women that were coming out saying Me Too, but I also couldn't help feeling, what about if one in three women and one in five men has been sexually perpetrated, think but about how many, how many people are perpetrating. Yeah. Think about how many, how do we love, if, if, if we are sexual molesters, right? Like mm-hmm. how do we love the parts of ourselves that have molested our children? Like that's boggling to me to think about. I have not molested my child, but the numbers demonstrate that there are that a people, whole lot yeah. of us that have. Yeah. And how do we love the part of us that has molested our child? Or how do we love the part of us who has been sort of um, made our children narcissistic prey of, of our, of ourselves, or how do right. we love the parts of ourselves that, um, you know, that, that break our new year's resolutions every year. Like these are not easy parts to love. And what I appreciate about internal family systems is that it gives us a way to look at those parts. Like in Avery's case, she was able to get to know the mm-hmm. part of her that threw herself under the bus right. in exchange for everybody else. And to see that it was a very necessary survival strategy, given her childhood wounding and the details of her story are all in there with her consent. Um, and that she, that absolutely saved her life at one point, but it had this protector part, this part that, that had developed in order to keep her safe in childhood had sort of overstayed its need to be there. Uh And so her sort of, I don't even like to necessarily call it shadow work because some of our parts don't want to be called the shadow. They're like, wait, I was, I was a light worker trying to save your life. (laughs) And, And it's so true because so often those parts, you know, like I like to think of them as what's that saying? Adaptive then maladaptive now right? Mm-hmm. Like we needed those parts to Absolutely. survive. Absolutely. And when we can get to know those parts and become intimate with those parts, we call them firefighters in, in IFS and understand how they still think they're protected. They, st- they usually think we're like seven years old. They mm-hmm. don't realize like I'm 52. They don't realize my parts. I have to remind them all the time. I am 52. I am a good mother. I have a 16 year old daughter of my own. I am not seven. <laughs> And so I don't need that part to do that protective thing anymore. I can do it better mm-hmm. from sort of the the divine self in me. Right, I that can, part gets to rest. Yeah, and there's so those parts that um, you know, like I, I, it it can be very triggering sometimes when I talk about extending compassion to like sociopathic parts in other people, or parts that are abusers in other people. Um, because, you know, some of us get very contracted and self-righteous and we need Mm -hmm. to, you know, we need to punish those people. And I, and and I absolutely believe we need to hold people accountable for their criminal behaviors and their war crimes and all of that. But I also feel like 
yeah, we're never going to have outer peace on the planet as long as we have inner wars going on with all of these parts at war inside of ourselves. And so, you know, I think some of the, like some of the real holy grail of the medicine that I found in this 10 years of research was about learning how to both face the shadow, right? To acknowledge the parts of ourselves that hurt others and hurt ourselves, but also to be able to have a really generous kind of self-compassion for Mm. those parts, to be able to reparent those parts and even appreciate them to one of my, my therapist, I have a wonderful IFS therapist, Nancy Morgan, and Nancy is running a support group for people's firefighters. So the parts oh, that do awesome. bad things, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> she, she says, we cannot love these parts enough. Like they have been so shamed. They have been so, uh, because typically those yeah. parts in ourselves, we, we medicate them, we imprison them, mm-hmm. we send them to rehab, we shame them, we judge them. We, um, yeah, we talk right. crap about We have them. a really hard time with them. We have a really hard time with them in ourselves and we have a really hard time with those parts in other people. And so they don't get a lot of love and yet they are part of our wholeness. And the more we ignore them and avoid them, the more they come out sideways and make us sick. Yeah. And so I find it, you know, again, it can be triggering when I talk about this with people, but I hope people hear it as hope- hopeful. Um, I think it's incredibly exciting that Asha Clinton is working with people's perpetrating parts and their cancers are going away without conventional medical treatment. Like what? That's blowing my mind. What? I mean, I'm, I'm literally, literally my, my mind. mind is blown. Yeah. Like, yeah. what is that? And again, we don't have the science. So these are anecdotes. Anecdotes mm-hmm. are not medical science, but wow, that's exciting. It's pretty darn exciting. Right? I think it really speaks to how powerful it is for us to kind of really like how, how powerful a medicine compassion can be. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And my, I can say from I'm eight years into IFS in my own work and I cannot, I cannot tell you again. I sort of was like making a plug for why embodiment work is worth doing because it feels good (laughs) once you can get past the, the uncomfortable part of it. And I would say, Loving the perpetrating parts in ourselves is the ultimate in like, I cannot speak highly enough about how worth it is, how worth it it is, because what that also does is it makes me such a generous person with my loved ones when they have perpetrating parts that hurt me. Yes. And it doesn't mean I don't hold them accountable and set boundaries and communicate clearly about what's okay and not okay. And you know, sometimes dial down the privileges if people cannot respect my boundaries and all of that. I do that also, but I am so much more generous and I have all these kind of unconventional love stories now about, you know, connection and disconnection and rupture and repair and finding our sweet spot when I'm speaking up on behalf of my parts, but I'm also listening to my loved ones speak on behalf of their parts and we're negotiating how to heal together and together that's right it is so intimate it is so loving it is so so um Mm co-regulating which of course is calming to the nervous system and brings us into that more healing aspect of the the ventral part of the vagus nerve where we are that's exactly what i was just thinking about like we're, we're in a more receptive place yes yeah 
receptive to other people, receptive to whatever your spiritual leaning might be, receptive mm-hmm. to nature and available for, you know, one of the prayers that one of the healers I worked with said, um, make me available for whatever healing is possible now. Mm-hmm. Right. But can we be actually receptive to that? Wow. So healing healing is about receptivity. And so that's what Avery realized. Like she was not actually available to receive healing from anybody. Yes. She was offering it, but it was one way. And so one of the exercises I do with my doctors when they come in for our heal the healer retreat is I say, okay, right now we are only going to practice breathing out. (laughs) Cause that's what we all do. We all give, right? So we are going to put air out. Now, how long can you do that without breathing air in? At some point you have to breathe it in again, right? Right? And it's hilarious because of course we don't last very long when we're only breathing out. And so we use the breath as a metaphor for sacred reciprocity, for giving and receiving in equal measure, which is at the core of many indigenous healing practices. It's at the core of like living moderately, being balanced <laughs> of, of like, you know, being able to take care of ourselves well and take care of others. All That's of right. And yeah. as I said, some people are wounded in the opposite way. They only breathe in. They suck the life force out of other people. Mm-hmm. And they... And so- And so then how long can you just breathe in? Exactly. You can't breathe in very long either. So these are not life generating ways of being. Right. And there's nothing. And I always say, like, I I always, this is my sort of empathic parts coming in again. I always want to remind people, it's not your fault. It wasn't my fault that I was only giving out, breathing out and sort of perpetrating on the sides because I was so depleted. Um, it wasn't my fault. I was hurt that way. And we can't do better until we know better and until we get treatment. You know, one of the paradoxes you talked about, and maybe this is a really great place for us to land, is, you know, it's not your fault and healing is your responsibility. That's right. And it's, it is something that we have some power over. Now, we're not in control of everything. We don't have the ultimate power. None of us are gods, in spite right. of the fact that we have God inside of us. Um, We are not all powerful, but we're also not all helpless and powerless. There is that sort of still point of balance, as you're saying, where we can be proactive about that, which is within our power and getting treatment for our trauma is one of those things that we do have some power over. And I also recognize I have a huge social justice part that knows that trauma treatment is a luxury good for most in, in our, in most countries. Mm-hmm. It is not covered by most insurances. At least the good trauma treatments are not covered by most insurances and it is expensive. And so part of my social justice activism is that we have started a nonprofit called Heal at Last. If we are, we have, we're not, we're still building it, but if anybody wants to get on the mailing list for that at healatlast.org, we are looking to scale sacred medicine, to scale. Oh, yay for anybody sort of based on like a 12 step like model where anybody can 12 step. It doesn't cost anything, but a donation if you can afford it. And if you can't afford it, you don't have to donate anything. And we're looking to scale this kind of work in that sort of way with peer to peer support and, uh, you know, training group leaders to hold safe containers for group healing work, um, 
So send us prayers because we've been, we've bitten off more than we can chew. And the demand is so great right now. And the amount, the trauma burdens that people are carrying are so extreme. And every trauma therapist I know is booked. Oh, every trauma therapist I know is booked with booked. a wait list. Yes. Yes. And it's, yes. It's, it's so, it's so triggering to me because it's so difficult to talk about this material to begin with. And when I do, you know, people, people with chronic illness get buy-in and they say, okay, you've sold me on it. I am ready to do my work now. Mm -hmm. How do I do it? And it's like, oh my God, yeah, nothing. Yeah. So we are so glad you're putting together this nonprofit and we just got our first hundred thousand dollar grant and we're building the infrastructure right now, but we're not quite ready. So in the meantime, I have a program called healing with the muse where we have about 500 people that can't find therapists or are doing this in addition to their therapy, where we're working with energy transfusion practices and uh, trauma healing practices um, in a, in a, on zoom right now. I love it. Yeah, that's our sort of uh, stopgap measure, and yeah. by donation, I mean it's people. It's pay what you can. So that's oh. our attempt to try to meet the need, because um, it, it's it guts me that yeah. I'm doing all this work to raise awareness about these issues, and there's a huge shortage of there's adequately a huge gap, trained yeah. trauma therapists, mm-hmm. and yeah. a huge um, problem around the the democratization of of health and sort of health equity issues around the finances. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so on board with you there. And I'm so happy to support getting the word out and helping folks find these resources that you're developing. Oh, thank you. And thank you for the work that you're doing as well. I know it's it's really important stuff and we need this more than, I mean, we, we need to do this work on ourselves and each other yes. for the survival of our species. Like it could not be more important. I can't think of anything so important. more important right now. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, if there's a shadow to the pandemic, it's it's how much it's helped us see how important this work is to do. Oh, absolutely. And the la- the last chapter of the book, which again, I wrote it when I had to rewrite the book. I also <laughs> rewrote the entire last chapter about collective trauma yeah. and how even the idea of, you know, like when I wrote Mind Over Medicine, I was not even thinking I was thinking, how can an individual self heal themselves? Right. Not thinking collectively (laughs) about what the whole container is bringing into the field. Right. And one of our, one of our African-American doctors in my program was like, oh my God, like, how do I help my African-American patients when they are swimming in a sea of trauma? Yes. And the limit. And an ongoing trauma, inescapable trauma, trauma that just doesn't, it's not just like okay, we're through it now. You survived. It's no, no, it's still here. No, it is still here every day. My sister is, uh, is biracial. My sister's BIPOC. So we talk about this and she's like every day, do you, you don't understand sis? This is what I do Mm -hmm. with every day. And every day I'm terrified. My son is going to be stopped for a broken taillight murdered Mm. and, or targeted for a hate crime. Cause he lives in the South, you know, like, ow. Yeah. So I, I think, I think that's one of the shadows of the wellness the wellness world also is the sort of exaggerated um, narcissism, the sort of exaggerated focus on me, myself and healing myself without awareness of, um, you know, the, the, the traumatic sea in which we all swim. 
Right. And I think it's so important to name this because that really is like how we heal collectively Mm -hmm. is that we have to notice these parts because just like we were talking about before, the parts of us that have caused harm are equally important to help notice the collective healing. Right. Yeah. Right. And that can be really difficult. I know, you know, particular types of childhood wounding make people trigger sensitive, like a hair trigger sensitive to anything that feels like shame because shame was weaponized and they were shamed for things that they were uh, Mm -hmm. entirely innocent around. And so, you know, even the way we talk about anti-racism and things like that, I noticed, I, I just, I just was interviewed by Resma Menachem, who I love, whose work I love. I love Resma. Yep. I love Resma's work. If any of the listeners don't know about my grandmother's hands and I just read his new book. Oh, we had him on a few years ago. Oh, he's fantastic. I just read his new book, The Quaking of America, which comes out at the same time my book does. Right. And Resma and I were talking about this and he was saying, how's it going with doing sort of anti-racism work with white male doctors? I'm like, it's not going well (laughs) because they're incredibly sensitive to anything that feels like literally one of our doctors opened uh, Layla Syed's book, Me and White Supremacy, Yes, was reading like three sentences and said, she's shaming me. And I said, okay, let's slow down. What What if she's extending herself and doing you a huge favor by educating you about what you're doing that hurts people like her. And he slammed the book shut. No, she's shaming me. Okay. So let's slow down. Right. Yes. And my sister's going, we can't slow down. White people need to get, be able to tolerate this quicker. Like BIPOC people don't have the option to slow down. And I'm like, yes, that's true too. This is making me think of is in when I work relationally with couples, right? So I'm just, I have two people in the room and I, I use a lot of relational life therapy, Terry Reels model, which takes on power dynamics in a way that I don't see other methodologies taking on. And one of the ways it takes on power dynamics is it talks about both shame and grandiosity. And when we talk about shame, the power under position, we're often, it's, it, you know, we're talking about like a power over power under position as opposed to what we try to help people get to, which is a shared power with. And when we're in the power under, it feels bad. It hurts. We want to get out of that place. But when we're in power over, when we're in the more grandiose place, it feels really good. It's hard to come down from there Mm. because it feels good. It's Mm. like trying to take the car keys away from someone who's drunk but thinks that they can drive. Right. I love that you're bringing this up because the whole last chapter of the book is about power over and power under dynamics and what, and and how, you know, as long as we're in that power game, yeah, it it is a zero sum game. It is as zero sum as the cold war, right? Like there is even the winners are losing. That's right. And so, so much of the work that I'm doing, especially with heal at last with the nonprofit work is about how do we how do we change the game all together such that we can share power and negotiate boundaries and make and communicate agreements together relationally in a co-regulating way where we can help each other um, repair our relational wounding in relationship but in a way that it in in some way requires us to set those of us who are maybe winners of the game. And I've been accused of being a a traitor to my privilege. Like I am a winner. I am, I won the game and I decided I didn't want it. 
um, in that I was sort of at the top of the power hierarchy, right? I'm like, mm-hmm. I am, I have every privilege other than being male. I am, I am a mm-hmm. white, highly educated medical doctor, cisgender, heterosexual, you know, able-bodied um person who has a body size that looks normal, like all of those privileges, um, social class, all of those privileges. And yet the suffering that even at the top of the power hierarchy, the suffering of losing the intimacy of, of not being of, yeah, of, of not of witnessing the people in the power under situation and, and just absolutely feeling crushed that I am in some way part of that. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, to be motivated by that, like not to be paralyzed in a one down shame position, but to be sort of motivated by the by what could happen if we are willing to make some sacrifices and learn how to share power and enjoy the intimacy of that. To me, that's why. Why would I give up my power? Why would I intimacy? Yeah. Why would I sacrifice grandiosity when it feels so great? Like, man, I loved, I loved me some inflated grandiosity here. Right. Like that felt great until it didn't. Right. And falling off that sort of pedestal that we put ourselves on or that other people put us on. And I really do have compassion for um, some of the people that I wrote about in the chapters about the shadow of sacred medicine. Like, man, I can tell you, at, given the position I am in, that the the culture wants me to abuse my power. Like they literally want to give their power away to me so that I am in a position where yeah. I am in a power over position. And I don't want to be in it, power. It makes people more comfortable when you're in the power over position yeah. than when you're in a shared power with position. People don't yet know what to do with that. No, they really don't. And I can tell you, having been you know, a medical doctor, like when I was in the delivery room and the shit's hitting the fan mm-hmm. and the mother is dying and the baby is dying and there is a room yep. full of experts in the room, if I do not look 100% certain that I know exactly what to do in a, if I'm not barking out yep. orders, then every, then the room is terrified. Yeah. Right. So if I were to say, Hey, everybody else in the room, what, what shall we do together to handle this crisis? I'd get fired. You know what it's bringing me to? <laughs> <laughs> you would get fired probably in that position. Right. And what I'm thinking about is so much of this comes back to our dysregulated systems, the, yeah. the disconnection that we have from our systems. Because if we all had more agency around feeling more just like connected within ourselves, it wouldn't be such a big deal that you're in a shared power with position. Right. It's a big deal when my system is dysregulated and I'm looking to you saying, tell me what to do. That's so absolutely true. And I, I had these, I've had years of conversation with uh, a woman who is a, a transpersonal psychologist, has a PhD in psychology, and she was the right hand woman for a guru for mm-hmm. 17 years, mm-hmm. a very powerful guru. And she and many other people in the community left the, the spiritual community because they wanted to share power with the guru and the guru wouldn't right. let them. Mm-hmm. There was no room. There was only room for one guru in that community, even though some of the students had outgrown him or had developed beyond him and felt that they had something to contribute. And right. so she was sort of in the one down to the guru. And I was saying, well, 
I'm, I'm the one on the stage and I am trying to get off the stage and get other people to come up and share the stage with me. And they don't want to, like, they, <laughs> <laughs> like, they're looking at me like, what you want me to come up on stage and teach mm-hmm. the Sangha. And I'm saying, please, please, please. And that is, that is my model for heal at last. I am literally uh. looking to actualize, a, a, you know, ideally in its, in its utopian version, it would ultimately become a leaderless group. But in the beginning, we are planning on training trained trauma therapists to be able to make sure that we protect the safety. But imagine if the group itself becomes the leader and if the practices and boundaries that are put in place and the sacred medicine practices that are holding the container could allow the container itself to be the guru or the Mm. healer. Like that's my, now you're getting into my sort of visionary. I, I, I'm going to go keep going there with you. And you know, it, it, it also just has a, a texture of it to me that reminds me of earth seed. I don't know if you're familiar with Octavia Butler's work. I love um, her work. Yeah. 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 So it, it's just kind of like bringing me to that kind of visionary place mm. and I'm, I'm loving that. And mm. I, I would love to help you out in any way that I can. Oh, so thank please you so just, much. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I I want to repeat because I think this is so important that the why is it worth doing this because the reward is intimacy. The reward is intimacy. The reward That's is right. intimacy and it's so heartwarming. It's so touching. There's so much love on the other side of this kind of journey and we can't guarantee what will happen to the body when we do that. But anecdotally, I can say that at least some of the time that infusion of intimacy, intimacy. when we're willing to, to um, I, the phrase I use all the time is letting love win. When love mm-hmm. wins instead of pride, when love wins instead of righteousness, when love wins instead of grandiosity, when intimacy is the reward, then this is medicine. This is medicine for the nervous system, which is then medicine for the body. And I really do believe it has the potential to reverse some medical illness. Yeah. Oh, so beautiful. And, you know, I think one last comment, because I I keep trying to wrap us up, but then we keep going to such delicious (laughs) places. It's so lovely. Oh, thank you. The the, the thing that I'm thinking about as you say this is intimacy. We don't really know intimacy from a power over power under place. We can't. No. So most people who don't understand that that's the reward, it's because maybe we haven't really experienced what that feels like yet. Absolutely. And people who are traumatized in certain ways, intimacy can feel like the enemy. And intimacy is paradoxically both the thing people crave and the most terrifying thing. And the thing we want to avoid. Yes. Especially people, I talk about the the NARM model in sacred medicine Mm -hmm. uh, and people, particularly people who don't get that early pre-verbal connection with the biological mother need met. And that can be through no fault of the mother. It can be because the baby's born premature and is in a incubator or because of adoption or um, the mother dies or, you know, any number of, of traumatic situations that can disconnect the baby from the the healthy mm-hmm. intimacy of the mother in a non-enmeshing way that um, people who don't get that need met have a significantly greater risk of chronic illness. And they also are um, much more likely to be attracted to spiritual communities and spiritual practices that are 
bypassing, spiritual bypassing and, and embodiment bypassing practices because they never fully embody. They never actually, it's never safe enough to, to fully embody as an infant, even as a neonate, as a, as a fetus. Um, And so that is a more difficult to treat wound, but it is treatable. It's just, it requires a much more gentleness than some of the other trauma healing methods that can really be too much for the, that particular population of high-risk individuals who are really at much greater risk of um, difficult-to-treat medical illnesses and mental illnesses as well. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Lissa, it has been such an amazing gift and a pleasure to have you join me here. Oh, thank you. It's so relaxing to my nervous system to be talking to somebody that I don't have to fight. <laughs> like, <I feel laughs> I'm so exhausted from the protectors in me that have been activists on social media, trying to just fight the ignorance and misinformation Mm. and spiritual bypassing and all of that. So thank you for being so easy. (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad that this was a respite for you. And I hope that everybody goes out and either pre-orders or orders a copy of Sacred Medicine because it is such a gift to the world. Thank you so much for for writing it. Oh, thank you for thank you for helping me spread the word. And to everybody who's listening, I just want to extend like a big, my empathic parts are sort of feeling the people on the other side of this conversation and recognizing that it can, it can have a really big impact. Um, And sometimes if there's not somebody there to be with someone when they're having that impact, I just want to reassure, Mm -hmm. like remind everybody to sort of like give yourselves a hug or go ask somebody that is safe to give you a hug. Like it can be hard to have this conversation. I want to make sure everybody feels regulated. Yeah, and that's a beautiful reminder, even just that we can all just put our arms or, you know, around ourselves, hold our shoulders and give a little squeeze. Mm, absolutely. Such a beautiful space to end. Mm. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you. I really enjoyed interviewing Dr. Lisa Rankin. You know, one of the things I love about her book, Sacred Medicine, is written right in the introduction. And I'm just going to read it to you. She writes, this is not a book about who's right and who's not. It's a book about healing. When healing happens, you might even find that you don't care so much about which camp is right. You care about using suffering, using whatever works. I hope that you'll take a little bit of time to read the book and to join us in a discussion over social media and let us know what you think. Take care, be well, and be awkward. You know, I find that it's in the spaces where we are awkward, where we're reaching a little bit outside of our comfort zone, that growth is happening too. Until next time. Learn more about my counseling practice, intensives, and online workshops over at connectfulness.com. And if you haven't already, check out our sister podcast, Why Does My Partner? Why Does My Partner tackles questions from listeners who want help in relationship. These questions, your questions, send them in, are relationship gold. They echo the conversations that take place over and over again in our therapy offices and take us deep into conversations around the skills that are right at the heart of relationship intimacy, greater health, and fulfillment. Jules, Vicky, and I 
also offer essential skills relationship boot camps. You can learn more about those at whydoesmypartner.com. You can listen to this podcast wherever you get your audio. We'd love if you follow and subscribe to the show, share it with those who may also be interested. I want to express my deepest gratitude to the musicians behind the beautiful soundtrack for this podcast, Sarah and Chris Ferris, who recorded and mixed this music at Kidney Stone Studio. And thank you, dear listeners. It's such a pleasure to be on this journey with you. This podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, and it's copyrighted by Connectfulness Counseling. And we'd love to hear from you. Please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram over at Connectfulness. Take care and be well. Until next time. Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com events.